This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Vice President Kamala Harris will visit Milwaukee on Thursday to deliver remarks at a policy conference for the Democratic Attorneys General Association. While in the city, Vice President Harris is also planning on meeting with local Latino leaders, according to the Wisconsin Public Radio. The trip will mark the vice president's third visit to the city and comes on the heels of President Biden visiting the city just two weeks ago. Harris is likely to speak about the importance of attorneys general as she herself was attorney general of California before becoming the state's senator. Wisconsin has an election for attorney general in November when incumbent Democrat Josh Call will face off against district attorney Eric Toney. Harry Waite, a man accused of election fraud and identity theft, will be represented in court by Michael Gableman, a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice who was formerly hired by Republicans to investigate the 2020 election. Waite, who admitted to fraudulently requesting ballots to show how easy it was to commit election fraud, faces up to 13 years of prison time. According to the Associated Press, Gableman praised Waite's efforts, as well as the group Hot Government, which Waite leads. Gableman was fired last month from his efforts to find election fraud in Wisconsin after he endorsed a primary challenger to Robin Voss, the Republican Assembly Speaker, and the man who had hired him to investigate the election in the first place. Sabrina Madison, the head of a nonprofit Progress Center for Black Women, has announced her intentions to apply to fill the vacancy in Madison's city council left city council left by the resignation of Gary Halverson. Halverson, who represented District 17 on the east side, resigned after it was revealed that he had paid to be part of the Oath Keepers, a far-right group, and had received threats on himself and his family. Sabrina Madison says that if selected to serve the remainder of Halverson's tenure, she would focus on issues of employment, housing, and mental health, according to the Capital Times. Applicants interested in filling the vacant seat can apply to the Common Council Executive Committee and will be interviewed by the committee on October 20th. The committee will announce their decision on October 25th, and the alderperson will hold the seat until next elections in April. The City of Madison announced its planned Halloween-themed events for this year, and notably absent is a plan to bring back FreakFest to State Street. FreakFest has been missing from the city's Halloween lineup for the last three years due to the COVID pandemic and declining attendance. The ticketed and gated event was meant to supplant open Halloween celebrations on State Street, which had previously been raucous and disruptive. But local businesses were split on its effectiveness and seem unenthusiastic in supporting its return, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Official city Halloween events include a hayride and trick-or-treating around Capitol Square on Wednesday the 26th. And those are today's headlines. During the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, Madison police used a record amount of tear gas to try and disperse protesters. And while a move to ban chemical munitions failed in 2020, a ban will once again go before the Common Council tomorrow night. But earlier today, Republican candidates for state and local office called on the city to abandon the move to ban tear gas, saying that the chemical weapons are necessary for policing. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. Republican candidates for state and local office gathered in front of the Hans Christian Hegg statue today to decry the proposed tear gas ban going before the Madison Common Council tomorrow night. 
The ordinance brought forward by District 8 Alder Juliana Bennett would ban the Madison Police Department from using tear gas, pepper spray, and impact projectile devices, including pepper balls, beanbags, and sponge rounds. The ordinance is not a total ban on chemical munitions. An amendment allows the use of chemicals in situations that bring urgent and imminent physical harm to the public or law enforcement, or when significant property damage exists and escalation is threatened. It also calls for the police department to issue a written report to the Police Civilian Oversight Board within 30 days of the chemicals being used. Bennett says currently, police can use chemical weapons whenever they declare a protest in unlawful assembly. These exceptions, she says, allow the police to continue to protect people and property without having to resort to chemical weapons whenever they please. Speaking before the Madison Common Council in January of 2021, before she was elected, Bennett described what the use of chemical weapons felt like to her. When they tear gas us, I cannot tell you what it feels like to like have this come into your eyes and it comes into your throat and literally I threw all over, threw up all over my mask, all over my friends. And it even just incites more distrust of police. And at the end of the day, wasn't an effective way of crowd control because we were still out there protesting against police brutality. But Eric Tony, Republican candidate for state attorney general, says that this exception is too broad and puts an unnecessary burden on police officers. And so we have law enforcement agencies from across Wisconsin that have said they will not send mutual aid to the city of Madison because of this proposed ordinance. That makes people that want to peacefully protest less safe. That makes residents and community members here in Madison less safe. And we are calling on the city council to abandon this proposal in the interest of public safety here in Madison because it is the wrong direction for this city. Also in attendance at today's press conference was Republican candidate for Dane County County Sheriff Anthony Hamilton, Dane County Supervisor Jeff Wygand, and Jeff Twing with the Wisconsin Fraternal Order of Police. Supervisor Wygand says that he fears the outcome if the resolution is adopted by the council. I'm here today because what happens in Madison has a ripple effect across all of Dane County. A less safe Madison means a less safe Dane County. And rather than looking to take away the tools of our law enforcement officers, we should be looking to give them more tools and equip them to do their job. During the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, the Madison Police Department deployed 62 cans of tear gas in just three nights. That's more than the entire 16 years prior. In January of 2021, Interim Chief of Madison Police Victor Wall issued a report on the city's use of tear gas from 1990 until August 1, 2020. In that report, Wall outlined several other crowd control measures available to police, such as use of batons and loud noise devices. The report stated that both of these methods can cause permanent damage, while tear gas has a much lower risk of causing serious injury. But even with that lower risk for serious injury, even police officers complained about the discomfort caused by the tear gas in the 2020 protests. In an internal report gathered by WORT in 2020, several officers outlined their experience with chemical weapons. One officer wrote, quote, My skin felt like it was on fire from the gas. My breathing was hyperactive, and I could feel the muscles in my leg starting to give into cramping and possible failure, end quote.
While an ordinance banning the use of tear gas failed to pass the council in 2020, Bennett says that now the ban may have legs. Bennett says that at the time, council members wanted more information on the use of tear gas by Madison police before they could confidently vote on it. But now that Wall's report, as well as an independent consultant's review of the 2020 protests, have been released, Bennett says that there's now enough evidence that tear gas should be banned. Tony, however, says that tear gas is needed to protect Madison. Today's press conference was in front of the Hans Christian Hegg statue on the Capitol Square. Hegg was a Union soldier during the Civil War and an abolitionist. During the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, protesters tore down the statue and threw it into Lake Monona. Tony said that the statue, which was later repaired in 2021, was the reason why tear gas is needed in Madison. But Bennett says that, instead of using chemical agents, police should be working with the community to gain their trust. Tony is not the only one against the tear gas ban. The Dane County Chief of Police Association, the Wisconsin Professional Police Association, and the Badger State Sheriff's Association have all registered against the ban. Additionally, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes released a statement saying that he is against the chemical munition ban last week, calling the ban, quote, punitive and regressive, end quote. The tear gas ban will go before the Madison Common Council at their meeting tomorrow night. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Following Lindsey Graham's introduction of a federal abortion ban bill, pro-choice activists gathered on State Street Sunday afternoon. They shared their perspectives while marching up to the Capitol and back down Langdon Street. WORT reporter Christopher Cartwright has the story. It was a sunny, 80-degree day downtown as protesters gathered for abortion rights. March, the Madison Abortion and Reproductive Rights Coalition for Healthcare, sponsored the event. Organizer Kim Gaspar-Raybuck says this action was particularly focused at raising awareness among students. So we wanted to be reaching out to a big chunk of people who, whom this is impacting uh, and many of whom don't even know that it's going to impact them until it does, until it happens. Um, and so we know that this is an emergency, uh, and we need to help other people understand that there's no legal abortion in Wisconsin, period. And there are literally thousands of people at UW-Madison campus who do not know that. The group of approximately 50 demonstrators amassed at Library Mall and marched up State Street. Along the route, activists passed out flyers, waved banners, and held signs. Many pedestrians cheered and honked in support, while a few joined the crowd. At the Capitol steps, the Raging Grannies group performed three protest songs. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? I tell you, my body's my own. I demand you leave it. Susie Bickley, a granny member since 2007, explained the international origins of the group. And they started in Canada when the United States was bringing nuclear subs into Vancouver Harbor. And they said, no thanks. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have a lot of incidents of people just showing up and saying, this really doesn't please us. Today is just another example. 
the local chapter formed in response to the Iraq War. They all remember the time before Roe v. Wade, and they refused to go back. You know, we marched in the 1960s for the right to contraception, for the right to women's health, for abortion. I mean, we never even said the word abortion. We were looking for contraception back in the day. I mean, so I'm talking about an age in which women were really meant to keep quiet, especially about sex and health. So um, so we started way back then, and I can't tell you how angry we are at the, at the re- just tearing up Roe v. Wade. I mean, we grew up not expecting it, but when we got it, we never thought we'd lose it. The protest lasted over two hours and wound down Langdon Street. Frat brothers watched while they rinsed their beer-soaked porches. One sorority cheered as they enjoyed a pizza party on their front lawn, yet none ventured forth to join. Most students stopped to watch the crowd pass before continuing their walk home. Gaspar Raybuck concluded with future steps. So this is about getting um, hundreds of people to feel like they're, not to feel like, to be leaders um, rather than led. And so the next steps for us are to really grow um, both the knowledge of what the crisis is on campus and grow a grassroots movement. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Christopher Cartwright. With an again, be sure that we won't do what's best. With a positive pregnancy test, so you rolled up your sleeves, came up with a plan. It's our 70 hands, and it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? It was a warm one today, but that cool, crisp fall weather is just around the corner. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more. These next few days may be the nicest weather that we will be seeing at least until next week. Our current temperatures are sitting at 76 degrees with cooler winds coming from south-southeast at 3 miles per hour. Temperatures have been falling in the morning, which is a great indicator that the autumnal equinox is just around the corner. Or in simpler terms, fall is almost here. It's time to carve those pumpkins and eat those apples. Going to your local apple orchard is a great way to reduce waste by eating fruit while it's in season. Allergy counts are down. Ragweed pollen is slightly present today, but for the next two days, all allergens will be in the none category. The UV index is still sticking around, only reaching moderate categories, very rarely the high category, but you should still be protecting your skin as rays are still dangerous. As we were moving to the later months of the year, we are seeing less sunlight. The sun now not rising until 6.42 a.m. and is setting closer to 7 p.m. Be sure to remember to put your bike and car lights on when commuting. Tomorrow is looking to be our last warmest day we will be seeing at least for the next 10 days. Tomorrow's high is looking to reach around 83 degrees with possible rain chances in the early morning. But the chance of it raining will drop down to 15% beginning at 10 a.m. Temperatures look like they won't be reaching the 80s until the afternoon and it will be variably cloudy in the area. As of now, the temperatures for the next 10 days look like they're going to be staying in the 60s starting on Thursday. Currently, Thursday's high is only looking to reach 60 degrees, with higher and cooler wind speeds coming from the north. Combining with cooler weather, we have higher humidity, and the higher humidity can make for the day feeling a bit stickier. But again, we're in the midst of changing weather, so that coolness is going to be breaking through that thicker air. Friday is looking to follow the same pattern as Thursday. Temperatures capping off at 60 degrees, higher wind speed, and possible rain chances. 
Saturday seems to be the last day that we will possibly be reaching the low 70s, but we are still going to be feeling stronger wind and high humidity. Sunday morning will be variably cloudy with slight chances for rain showers and temperatures in the upper 60s. And you guessed it, high humidity. But with how the Midwest is, we could be seeing these cooler temperatures that we've been feeling into next week for a while, or we could possibly be seeing the weather warm up again. But for now, the cooler weather is looking to stick with us. With your WORT weather report here in Madison, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. In the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade earlier this year, LGBTQ folks around the country began to fear that their rights to marry may soon be overturned as well, after comments from Justice Clarence Thomas in the Roe decision. To ensure that doesn't happen, Wisconsin U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin is spearheading the Respect for Marriage Act to set in stone the rights for LGBTQ folk to marry. And while she announced last week that the Senate won't be voting on the bill until after the November election, she spoke with Friday 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore last week about the bill and why she is confident it will pass the Senate. I want to ask you to provide some context before we get into the specifics of your bill. Explain what the Defense of Marriage Act is and, and why you think it's important to repeal. The Defense of Marriage Act is now uh, the law of the land. However, it has been made moot by a Supreme Court decision, um, actually a series of uh, Supreme Court decisions. One, uh, the Windsor case that declared that part of the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional. And then a later case known as Obergefell that uh, essentially determined that same-sex couples should be allowed and afforded the right to marry. And that made the Defense of Marriage Act uh, completely moot. But if there were some future case that resulted in the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Obergefell, the Defense of Marriage Act, which uh, defines for federal purposes a marriage between a man and a woman, that would be uh, the law of the land. And it's important to repeal it because there are now well over a million uh, married couples who uh, could see their legit- the legitimacy of their marriage Question, you know, in question, uh, uncertain if Obergefell were overturned, not to mention those who in the future will seek to marry. It, it had almost a, a Trojan horse element in it then, did it, it turned out, it sounds like. Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, is very concerning to both interracial couples as well as same-sex couples is that the the reasoning or the argument uh, that led to uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade is quite similar to the reasoning that was the basis for uh, establishing both the right for interracial couples to marry as well as the right for same-sex couples to marry. Let's go a little bit deeper there. Help connect the dots for our listeners between 
the decision that overturned Roe versus Wade and the potential impact it has on who can marry whom? Yes. So all of these cases uh, were decided based on uh, right to privacy. And interestingly, the Constitution does not actually have uh, the word privacy in this context, but it was deemed sort of central to the constitutional rights mm-hmm. of Americans. And so in uh, the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, the, the court basically said the word privacy is not uh, in, the, in the Constitution, therefore, you know, taken uh, literally, uh, it doesn't exist. And so every case that has uh, privacy as its underpinning is, you know, vulnerable. Now, majority opinion did not uh, specifically uh, call out these other cases, but a concurring opinion by Clarence Thomas basically said, you know, this decision, uh, of course, in which he agreed, overturning Roe versus Wade, invites us to rethink uh, access to contraception and uh, the Obergefell decision, which uh, created marriage equality, uh, the right of same-sex couples to marry and, um, and benefit from the rights and responsibilities that every marriage you know, comes with. So that calling out mm-hmm. by uh, Clarence Thomas uh, put a lot of folks rightly so, uh, on edge, really concerned about the future legitimacy. And he was basically inviting litigation. Senator Baldwin, walk us through now your Respect for Marriage proposal. The Respect for Marriage proposal, um, number one, repeals the Defense of Marriage Act. So it would not be uh, enshrined in federal statute anymore. And, um, but that only does part of the job. What will happen if this Supreme Court or a future Supreme Court were to overturn the Obergefell decision is that there will be some states that uh, permit same-sex couples to marry. There'll be other states where uh, the law prior to the Obergefell decision bans same-sex marriages. Wisconsin, for example, had a referendum uh, in 2006 that defined marriage as uh, a relationship between a man and a woman uh, in, in our Constitution. Wisconsin would not be one of those states that would uh, allow same-sex marriages. However, uh, the way the uh, Respect for Marriage Act deals with that is it says through the full faith and credit clause of the U.S. Constitution, a valid marriage and valid meaning valid where and when it was solemnized will be through full faith and credit recognized by another state. So you, you, you basically repeal the Defense of Marriage Act. The federal government will respect all existing uh, same-sex marriages and future ones that are solemnized in states uh, that recognize same-sex marriage. And um, and then, you know, we have uh, between the states the full faith and credit, uh, but it will not be, it is not the same as sort of codifying or putting into the federal statutes uh, the Obergefell decision. 
there will be issues related to where one can uh, prospectively go to be married. A recent Gallup poll shows that over 70% of Americans support marriage equality. The House version of your bill passed with 47 Republicans voting in favor, yet there appears to be um, perhaps some tougher sledding for it in the Senate. Describe the political dynamics and the future for the bill in the Senate. Um, At this point, I feel fairly confident that we will have enough votes to pass the Respect for Marriage Act on uh, the vote for final passage. The um, conversations that I've been having with my Republican colleagues uh, lead me to believe that, uh, you know, despite uh, a reluctance to necessarily uh, issue a press release and proclaim their support, that uh, if, if that vote were before them, we, we, would, we would be able to pass this bill. And again, this relates back to the strange procedures in the Senate whereby you need more than just a majority. You mm-hmm. need 60 votes to pass substantive legislation. And in a 50-50 Democrat-Republican Senate, that means we need at least 10 Republicans. Now, I, I feel pretty confident about that. What is problematic is there's a lot of, oh, how would I describe this? Uh, a lot of uh, concern about how, how close this vote may be to the uh, midterm elections. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are folks who I think we will ultimately have on final passage who are saying, I'm not sure I'm going to vote to get onto the bill right now. And that's what we're really working on mm-hmm. this week, uh, very in a very focused manner. And so finally, as we said in the introduction of the segment, the U.S. Supreme Court set much of this in motion with the decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, a decision that didn't surprise people, mainly because the court has become so predictably partisan. I think, I guess I saved the most naive question for last. Senator Baldwin, are the days of, of a, a nonpartisan Supreme Court gone forever? You know, I certainly hope not in the long run, but we have right now a situation where there was clearly partisan Supreme Court. Uh, our last president, who was a very polarizing figure, uh, to say the very least, is responsible for nominating three out of the nine uh, justices. Um, So fully a a third of of our U.S. Supreme Court came onto the court under the last president. And we know from, uh, you know, his overt discussions that he was aiming to create uh, not only a, a polarized Supreme Court, but one that would overturn Roe versus Wade. Senator Tammy Baldwin, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This Saturday is the anniversary of one of the earliest farm workers' strikes in American history. On this week's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson breaks down how the Filipino farm workers played a major role in shaping farm working conditions across the country. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Saturday, September 24th, is the anniversary of the end of the Salinas Lettuce Strike of 1934, led by the Filipino Labor Union, FLU. The month-old strike ended when the workers won recognition of their union and a wage increase, 
The California strike of the agricultural workers and the Filipino Labor Union, FLU, faced massive repression from racist mobs and armed vigilantes. However, they held out and won a qualified victory, one of the earliest victories in a long history of farm workers fighting back against growers in California that is today overshadowed by later-day movements such as the United Farm Workers, UFW, that started in the early 60s. The Philippines became a colony of the U.S. as a result of the Spanish-American War in 1898, along with Cuba, Guam, and Puerto Rico. Filipinos did not go quietly into the American Empire, but fought a bitter seven-year battle for independence that was in a way a precursor to the Vietnam War. With the passage of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and the strikes by Japanese workers in the California fields, there was a demand for new, cheap labor. As U.S. nationals, the Filipinos, were exempt from immigration laws that kept out most Asians under the Asian Exclusion Act statute of the Immigration Act of 1924. Filipinos began filling the void. Most of these immigrants were single men with high school educations between the ages of 18 and 24. They were not eligible for U.S. citizenship unless they served three years in the U.S. military. The Filipinos were originally recruited to go to Hawaii as strikebreakers during a major uprising in the sugarcane fields, which eventually spread to major labor sectors all over the island. Then they came to the U.S. where they were hired by farmers to pick seasonal crops and to work in canneries. It was a hard life going from region to region with no guarantees of employment. Growers at first considered Filipinos to be highly desirable workers, as they were even more docile, low-paid, and hard-working than the more Americanized Mexicans, according to a Labor Department bulletin of the day. Growers employed workers through a contractor that would hire workers of different races, speaking diverse languages, and not accustomed to mingling with each other to keep the workers apart and away from organizing in their common interest. But the Filipinos turned out to be militant workers, who did much to lay the groundwork for the organizing drive that began in 1965 and led to the most successful farmworker organizing drive in the history of the nation. On August 28th, 7,000 white and Filipino lettuce workers went out on strike. Salinas was then the lettuce capital of the world. The Filipinos did much of the fieldwork, while the whites generally worked in packing house sheds. Filipinos made up 40% of the total workforce in the valley. They had formed the Filipino Labor Union, FLU, the year before, while the white workers had joined the AFL as the Vegetable Packers Association, VPA. The Filipinos initiated the strike, and the whites sought to join forces with them. Both unions agreed neither would return to work until both had won their demands. Together, they demanded wage increases, union recognition, and better working conditions. Losing $100,000 a day, the growers soon brought in replacement workers, scabs. The growers got the California Highway Patrol to arrest striking Filipinos on incitement and vagrancy charges. The VPA reneged on their deal and agreed to arbitration, leaving the FLU on their own. There was speculation that the white workers were threatened with the loss of their AFL charter if they refused to return to work. Perry McWilliams in The Nation in September of 1935 reported on the strike saying that the white workers were ordered to go back to work by Joseph Casey, an AFL official. McWilliams further noted, the Filipino is a real fighter and his strikes have been dangerous. The Filipino workers kept organizing and retaliation increased. The FPA leaders distanced themselves from the Filipino workers and racially charged vigilante violence intensified. It culminated in the burning down of the labor camp 
where hundreds of Filipino workers lived a month after the strike began. Vigilantes then drove as many as 800 Filipinos from the valley at gunpoint. The strike was officially called off, and those that remained returned to work. The Filipino Labor Union won two of their main demands, union recognition and a wage increase to 40 cents an hour. But it was a limited victory as ethnic tensions and discrimination continued and many dissatisfied workers left the union. But the Filipino workers learned an important lesson for a strike two years later and for fightbacks that continued throughout the Depression. But those are stories for another day. For The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson. And for this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson watched two new movies. The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared is a comedy now streaming, and The Woman King is a new action-packed adventure movie in theaters now. Now listen, I need you to help me find someone. He's a 100-year-old geezer. His name is Alan Carlson. He has got my money. Bring him to me as soon as you can. That was clip from the trailer for The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared. A Swedish film, co-written and directed by Felix Herngren. It's based on a novel by Jonas Jonasson. It's mostly in Swedish with a few English scenes. There are subtitles, but sometimes they're hard to read. This is a wonderfully absurd, laugh-out-loud movie, sort of a cross between Zelig and Forrest Gump, but funnier than either. The 100-Year-Old Man features great performances with a sometimes violent story. Robert Gustafsson holds the story together with a great poker face as Alan Carlson, the 100-year-old man. We see the reason for the title right away. Alan, a retired explosives expert, goes a little crazy when his cat is killed by a fox. He sets a trap for the fox by his chicken coop. He spectacularly blows up the fox and the chicken coop. This lands him in an old folks home where he is bored and escapes out the window. A caretaker is worried about him, but a laid-back detective assures her that he probably just wandered off. He says to call him when he returns, but the detective gets assigned to the case that gets more and more bizarre. There are actually two stories. Alan narrates his past, explaining how he got where he is, and his rambling adventure after his escape from the home. Alan goes to the nearest bus station to get out of town. He hands over his few coins to an incurious ticket seller and is soon on a short bus trip, but not before he becomes the unwitting possessor of a suitcase. A very agitated young tough in a hurry orders Alan to take the suitcase which he's unable to take with him into the small bathroom of the station. He tells Alan, who is about to get on the bus, not to let it go for any reason. So Alan takes him literally and is off on the bus with the case. This leads to a wild pursuit where Alan collects a fellow loner, Julius, a delightful performance by Iwar Weeklander, an underachiever, Benny, David Weberg, and a farmer elephant protector, Gunaila Mia Skeringer. This is interspersed with his life story, where he blows things up and unwittingly meets and assists a lot of important people, Franco, Stalin, and Harry Truman, among others. All in all, a highly enjoyable, quirky film. I highly recommend it. It came out in 2013, but recently started streaming and is available on DVD. Now for a historical action film set in Africa in 1823. To be a warrior, you must kill your tears. That was clip from the trailer for the exciting, violent, battle-filled movie, The Woman King, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood. The movie is based on actual events. 
This is an old style cast of Thousand's epic adventure with a twist. The setting is Africa, and the story's main characters are the women of the Agoji, the Special Forces Women's Army of the West African Kingdom of Dahomey in present-day Benin. These women are led by General Neniska Viola Davis. In the opening scene, they literally appear out of the grasses and the night and defeat the Mahai people before they realize what has happened. But their real enemy is the Oyo Empire, who have horsemen and guns. Their fierce leader, Oba Eidi, is played with a certain evil swagger by Jimmy Oduhoya. The central story is the Agoji, who have their own code and live separately from the men of the village. They have a male leader, King Gezo, played by John Boyaga. Neniska is supported by her friend Amenza, Sheila Atim, and Izagi, the scene-stealing Lashana Lynch. We see the ways of the Agoji through the eyes of a new recruit, Nawi, in a fine performance by Tuso Mbedu. But Mbedu's character undercuts the main action and focus of the movie with its unfortunate soap opera subplots, the Dor a Malaysia. The all-women's army in 2018's Black Panther was loosely inspired by the Agoji. Interestingly, there really was a King Gezo, and he greatly expanded the role of the Agoji during his rule. Eventually, they became one-third of the army. Sadly, the real Dahomey leaders were eager participants in the lucrative slave trade, and the real Agoji viciously enforced these goals. But that would have been a much different movie. This movie is highly entertaining, groundbreaking with its mostly African diaspora cast in front of and behind the camera. See it on the biggest screen available if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer tonight was Nate Carlin. Your reporter tonight was Christopher Cartwright. Welcome aboard, Christopher. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore with the 8 o'clock buzz, Harry Richardson, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. And special thanks to our pledge rappers this evening, Shally Pittman and Nate Carlin. Engineer Victor Calzoni got us on the news, got the news on the air tonight. Nate Weggiehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Up next is the most freeform show on the radio dial, The Access Hour. Coming up after these announcements. Good night. <laughs> 